0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Justice is what's happening to us. No one's paying the price for failed banking, failed businesses, failed marriage. Nobody pays a price. It's no fault, nothing. Don't worry about it, nothing. Just make it go away. You can't grow as a people with that attitude. You can't. Mm-hmm. You're robbing me of the most important thing I have and that is my my right to fail. If I don't have if I don't have failure, if I don't have struggle, I cannot be my best self. I will never be challenged. If we all say take away all the bullies so my child could have a perfect childhood, a, that doesn't exist. It's ridiculous to think that it does. What kind of bubble is that? And B, you're robbing your children of strength.
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. You and I have uh, connected by way of some rather serendipitous events, and uh, you know, what prompted this conversation was something that somebody wrote about you who actually used to work for you that said, you're the most misunderstood man in the world. And I looked at that, and I thought to myself, let's understand the most misunderstood man in the world. <laughs> so on that note, uh, tell us you know, the story that we don't know, the story that has brought you to where you're at today, the journey, I mean, going as far back as your childhood,
1: um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's, I mean, uh, I've, t- I talk about, um, my childhood. I've written about my childhood. Um, uh, so I guess if it's not, if, if you, if you, if you don't listen or, or read that, then I guess that would be kind of a critical piece. The, um, I grew up in a small town in Mount Vernon, Washington. My dad was a baker. Um, my, uh, um, my, I knew what I wanted to do when I was really little. I, it was a, a rainy day in, or I mean, a sunny day in Seattle in the winter, and you know, 100, 180 rainy days, 310 cloudy days out of the year. And it was sunny, and I was sitting inside watching TV, and I was just, just about to turn
3: uh,
1: eight that year, and my mom came in, and she turned off the TV and she said, "Go outside and play." beautiful and I grumbled under my breath that uh, uh, you watched TV when you were a kid and then she said something that was so fascinating I thought she was Wilma Flintstone all of a sudden she said we didn't have TV when I was a kid and I couldn't even understand that concept and um, uh, she sat me down and and she told me about um, what radio was like and that grandpa had uh, an old radio with a big green eye in the center she called it And uh, it was the tube would light up from the back and light this eye and grandpa would turn off all of the lights in the house and they'd listen to lights out or they'd listen to um, Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy or um, uh, the shadow. So on my eighth birthday, she got me a record collection, the golden years of radio. And I listened to all those. And now I'm, now I'm a really freaky kid. Now I'm inside in my room listening to records of old radio shows. And, uh, and I learned the power of the spoken word. And I learned that my imagination is far superior to Hollywood. Um, because if it's, if it's said right, if it is um, uh, descriptive enough, um, you see it all. You see it all and better than CGI. So I knew what I wanted to do when I was eight and I set out to do that. And, uh, uh, my mother, um, died when I was, uh, 13, 15, somewhere in that area, 1979. And, um, and, uh, that was the year that I started working and, um, and I worked hard and you know, for a myriad of reasons, but, uh, um, started to buy my own bullcrap. crap. You know, when you're 16 years old and you're working in a big market like Seattle and everybody's like, what, look at how old is this kid? You start to buy your own bullcrap. crap. And, um, by the time I was, uh, 19, I was programming a station. I was, um, working in Washington, DC, and I thought I was the greatest. And, um, Unfortunately, that went on for a while until I was 30 and, um, and then it it completely fell apart because I was miserable because I kept, I would say the next job will fulfill me the next, Well, it's the next stepping stone. It would be, it'll be the next, you know, raise in income. And, you know, I'm 25 years old and, um, this is back in the eighties making quarter of a million dollars a year. And just saying, saying stupid stuff on the radio. Um, the days of the old morning zoos, just stupid. And um, low, low IQ on this kind of stuff. <laughs> low is common denominator. And um, um, uh, and nothing, nothing would ever satisfy me. And by the time I was uh, 30, nobody really wanted to work with me because I was a just a angry, angry guy. And I didn't like me. I didn't know what would ever fulfill me. And alcohol had begun. And it was on my 30th birthday that I, I laid in bed and, uh, I watched the clock change to midnight. And it was one of those old, um, LED clocks where the I don't know if you even remember, but the the numbers used to look like they would kind of move. It was either that or my, in my drinking, but the (laughs) numbers kind of jumped a little bit and looked like they moved. And, uh, I watched those numbers jump and then it turned to midnight and I thought your life is about to change. And, uh, it did for the worse at first. I mean, I was already working in the smallest market that I had worked in since I was 16 years old. And, uh, uh, I started losing my family and I started losing everything and I tried to stop drinking and I couldn't. And at this time I'm running these stations mainly in the ground, but I was running them from clear channel. I was running three stations that clear channel had and, uh, and I was just a bad boss. I was just bad and wanted to stop drinking And uh, couldn't. And um, I I would get up every day and I would look in the mirror and I would um, brush my teeth and look at myself right in the eyes and say, you pathetic, worthless piece of crap. You said yesterday you weren't going to drink. And that's exactly what you did. Don't do it today. And, uh, I couldn't stop myself and, uh, it, I, I, I have pretty strong willpower and couldn't stop. And, um, you know, after a couple of years of telling yourself that you're worthless, I had to open up the mirror in the medicine cabinet every day cause I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. And, um, and one day I, uh, I started to have blackouts, and that, you know, it's not like what you hear on TV. Is like, uh blacked out. It didn't. I had sex with her. What? It, it, blackouts are the scariest thing. You have a blackout, and that will freak you out um, because it's gone, mm-hmm. completely gone. And uh, uh, I started having blackouts, and I was freaking out quite a bit. And I went to the doctor for something else. Doctor came and he said, "So how much?" how much you drink in a day? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And, uh, he said, what are you putting into your body? He said, cause you'll be dead in six months if you don't stop, whatever it is. And I was in total denial. And, and I went home and, um, uh, I used to tell my kids stories every night and I'd get into bed and, and, um, pull them close to me, and I'd tell them story of Inky, Blinky, and Stinky, the three little mice that um, would go on adventures to the Island of Cheese, where it would rain Parmesan, and they would take their marshmallow boat out, and Thomas the cat was there to catch all the mice. And I told them a story one day, and we came down to the dinner table the next morning, and, and uh, we're having breakfast, and Kids rushed down. They said, "Dad, Dad, tell us the story of Inky, linking and Stinky that you told us last night." And I couldn't remember even tucking them in, and um, I was so ashamed, and I uh, I lied to them, and I said, uh, "I want to see how well you remember it. You tell me the story." And so there I am, listening to my two little girls talk about a story that. I had told them the night before that I didn't recall at all. And, uh, and they just their voices just kind of faded out as I just heard this soundtrack in my head. What are you doing? What are you doing? What is wrong with you? And um, so I went to a church basement and, um, that night and stood up and said, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic. And I said, but I don't want to drink today. I sat down, and by the end of the meeting, I stood back up and I said, uh, "Hello, my name is Glenn, and I'm an alcoholic." And that was the beginning of changing my life. I had put my emphasis on my career and money and success and everything else, and it's all empty. It's all empty. Um. And then I tried to. I tried to. Um, hold that sobriety myself and um, you know I guess a couple of things happened one was uh, inspiration for a a book that I wrote called The Christmas Sweater that is kind of based on my childhood my life really up until about 35 and um, uh, I had a dream one night that uh, I was standing in this cornfield and it was, it was gray and dirty, and the corn stalks were broken and snow-covered, but that nasty kind of snow that's been there for a while and melted and hardened and remelted, and everything was gray and sepia tone. And I was standing on a road in the middle of this cornfield, and it was all broken. And, and I look around, and it's nothing. It's just barren all the way around. And I turn around 360 degrees, and right behind me is this. At the end of the road is this storm, and it was like the darkest, blackest, nastiest black hole of a storm. And I was overwhelmed with danger. And uh, so I turn around. I continue making the whole circle, and I turn back around. And I hear this voice from behind me. And the voices said, "Where are you going?" And I turn back around and I see this old man and he is, he's white beard, but it's kind of that smoker kind of white, you know, it's yellow and nasty and he's dirty, wrinkled and tattered. And, uh, I said, I don't know, but uh, not that way. And he said, well, that's where you have to go. And I said, that'll kill me. He said, there's nothing to that. Nothing there. You should see what's on the other side. And um I said, I, I'm not going. He said, here. Just grab my hand. And next thing I knew, we were up above the storm on the other side. And it was it was technicolor. And it was um the greenest green and the and the colors of the sky and the blue and it was Unbelievable. And uh, I wasn't looking at him. I was just looking around. And he said, this is what's on the other side. There's nothing to that storm. And this is what's on the other side. And I remember all I could utter was, it's so warm here. And uh, I began to turn around. I only saw him for a fraction of a second. I only saw about a quarter of him, but he was brilliant white. He was like made of light and his beard had become fiber optic and he was just made of light and I woke up and, uh, I got up and I still have this painting, but I got up and I tried to paint the storm so I would never forget. And I didn't need to, (laughs) I would never forget that story i never forget that dream. But I got up in the middle of the night and I painted that. And uh, I realized that Thomas Jefferson was right on what he wrote to his nephew, Peter Carr. He said, um, he was talking about religion. He said, above all things, when it comes to religion, question with boldness even the very existence of God. For if there be a God, he must surely rather honest questioning or blindfolded fear. And I realized with almost everything in my life, I had lived in blindfolded fear. There's just things I wasn't going to ask about my family, about my mother's death, about me, um, about everything. I'm just not going to ask. I I don't know. I don't, I don't need to know that much. How God does he even exist? I don't know. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, so for a while, I, 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 I mean, I was, I guess I would be an agnostic, not technically an atheist. Um, I took everything out. I said, I don't believe anything. I don't believe anything. And I started putting them in one by one. And I thought, if I put something in that I say I believe, if I put that in and it disagrees then with something else that I put in, one of them is not true. Start again. This took me a long time. And uh, I built what I like to call a library of a serial killer um, because I would go into the bookstore in the day when there or bookstores. And I went in the bookstore and I would, I would walk the aisles and I'd be like, "Hmm, who would really disagree with each other? Let me get Carl Sagan and Pope John Paul. Let me get, let me get the greatest minds together and let me see where they intersect. Because if there's intersection, there's truth. That's where, you know, there's truth. And, uh, and so I tried to put my life back together and tried to make sense of the world and that took me a while. But I was about to lose my sobriety when um when I met my wife Tanya. And uh I I uh, by this time I was a pretty spiritual guy, not religious. I'd gone back to school um and tried to get a took under you know, an underclassman um you know, schedule of of um, uh, religion. And, uh, I took it from a, you know, good university and, and, uh, and uh, took it from the history department because I wanted to know, I didn't want, I didn't want some religious spin and it can religion completely fell apart for me. And, um, and so when I met this girl, Tanya through an amazing series of coincidence, um, I asked her to marry me, and she said no. And I'm like, but look at me. I mean, you could have all this, huh? Who doesn't want this? And uh, I said, why? And she said, because we have to have God in common. And I said, well, I believe in God. You believe in God. She said, we have to have structured God in common. And I said, honey, listen to me. You go to church every Sunday, and every time you come home, you're complaining about the people who you saw in the parking lot, the people who pissed you off. I said, I sat in my underpants and watched HBO and I'm always in a good mood. That's not for me. And, um, she said, well, I won't marry unless we, we can find something together. So we did. And, um, um, you know, a lot of religious people think that they, um, you know, they say, oh, I accept the atonement and I accept, you know, the forgiveness of, of Christ. And maybe they do. I don't know. But I am a guy who needed it more than most. And when you really need it, really need it, you don't uh, you appreciate it. And uh, so in 2000, I reset my life. And uh, I had so many things that I could uh, just couldn't carry around anymore, and uh, and I remember being in that in the water, and being uh, ready to be baptized, and I remember shouting in my head, I was shouting at God. You say, in your words, that if I do these things, that you will take away the things that are bogging me down, and you'll clean my slate. That's your promise, as long as I keep my end of the bargain. And in my arrogance, don't ever do this. In my arrogance, I said, if you don't keep your promise, you cease to be God. And it won't be me that breaks this promise. And, uh, uh, you know, when you challenge God like that, that's a pretty serious gauntlet to throw down. So I have taken that really seriously and um and tried really hard to uh make that turn, but you know, when you're when you've got 40 years of life and you start all over again, it's hard to stop the patterns. And uh so I've just been the last 15 years been trying to change the patterns of my life. And in some ways, I guess I'm a teenager in, uh, um, in my journey the second time around. Hmm.
2: Well, there's a lot of stuff here. So uh, I want to go back to the very beginning uh, of this. You know, it's funny because I've asked so many people a similar version of this question and to listen to you describe that moment in your childhood where, you know, you saw radio and you knew exactly what you wanted to do. I don't think all of us are so lucky. You know, there's a, a spark moment, but what I'm finding more and more is that when I bring people, the unmistakable creative, it's people who have figured out how to get it back as adults. And, you know, having seen all the creative people that you have, you know, over the course of your career, I mean, you and I have talked before. I mean, some of them are legendary in their fields. How do we get back to that?
1: Um, you know, I've given a few speeches um, at radio conferences. And um, I, I, I usually start with um, none of us grew up and said, you know what I want to do? I want to manage a lot of people, but kind of keep them at a distance, keep my door closed and sit at a big desk and just kind of yell at people from time to time. And I want to really focus on the numbers of the, bit. nobody does it at eight. You want to be a fireman. You want to be an astronaut. You want to be, you know, a computer whiz, whatever you want to be, but you don't say, I want to be in middle management. I want to be an accountant, you know? Um, uh, and somehow or another, we let life wash over us and teach us. No, you will be this because that's what your family said you were. That's what society says. That's what you need to be. You're like, no, I don't want to do that. And then the, the, the system teaches you it's about money and about success, and we buy into it. And I was lucky enough to completely bottom out without death. Mm-hmm. That's the secret. If you can bottom out and turn before you die, um, you have a chance. You have a chance. I'm mm-hmm. I, I mean, we are so lucky to be living in a time where a sixteen year old can dream it and do it. It didn't used to be that way. You'd have to work your way up into the lat you know, up the ladder and get in without losing your soul. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in tele- I'm in television. When I left Fox, I'll never forget standing in the uh window of my apartment. I had this you know, when I was 10, I knew I wanted to work in New York City. I wanted to work at Rockefeller Center. Um, and so here I am. My radio studios are in Radio City Music Hall. Um, I work in my office looks right out on uh, the Christmas tree at Rockefeller Center. Every childhood dream I have, have this apartment. I remember seeing Wall Street, the new Wall Street. And I remember seeing the, the apartments that he was living in. And I looked at my wife and I said, holy cow. They should have filmed it at our apartment. I mean, I was really excited. I mean, we were like, we have arrived at a 180-degree view of Manhattan, right at the park, beautiful 50th floor. And I hear, you're standing in the wrong place. That's what I hear in my heart, standing in the wrong place. And I'm like, what? I don't think so because I know it wasn't my talent that put me here. And, uh, and uh, I, I – Tried to, you know, plug my ears and la 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 la. I'm not hearing that for a while. And um, finally, my wife and I decided to um, leave and quit and move out of New York. And it was a really hard decision. And on the night we made that decision, I mean, I'm a pariah. Nobody creative wants to be around me. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so. The night we made that decision and we finalized it, we said, okay, final answer, final answer. We went to see Spider-Man. And and I had seen it. um, Michael Cole had asked me to come back because I had seen it the week before. And I said, this is genius in what they're trying to do. And it was, they were going to close. I mean, it was over. I found out later in a book about it that that night that I saw it was the night they were deciding to close it. The next day I got on the air and said, this is genius on what they're trying to do. And it stayed open because of that. Michael called and said, would you just come and see it again when we make these changes? I did. Well, Bono is there. And so, uh, it's Michael Cole, Julie Taymor, Bono, the guy who did the set, the set was genius. He's some Russian guy who does opera and they're all sitting backstage. And I get this, text halfway through it says uh from michael it says uh, bono's here would like to say hello do you have time after the show and i leaned over to my wife and she read it and her eyes just popped open and i'm like do we have time to meet bono (laughs) yeah i think we could squeeze him in and so uh we went backstage and we spent 30 minutes talking about the show Mm -hmm. in a creative sort of way and um they said we're wrestling with the ending we don't know the ending and I had just walked backstage, and I said to my wife, I said, the, the, the ending's all screwed up. I said, they don't know what the ending is. The ending is so clear. And she's like, okay, big shot. So we go backstage, and they say, we don't know the ending. And my, uh, my wife looks at me like, dear God, don't give them your opinion. Please, sip your mouth, please. And I just, dive went, hmm actually you guys do know what the ending is and i told him the ending and and um and we left and so i was on a high and uh i come home and i open up our door and it's floor to ceiling glass all of manhattan beautiful skyline my childhood dream of living there i used to sleep with the window drapes open every night when my wife wasn't there so i could see the skyline and um I walked into the corner, this glass corner, and, uh, and I stood there, and my wife was behind me, and she didn't, we didn't turn on any lights. And I said, how can this be God's plan? Look at what we can do. I finally have access. Uh, the numbers, the ratings are great. I finally have access. Look, at uh, you're not, we move away, we're not going to be doing that. What, look at what could happen. And I'm lucky enough to be married to a wonderful woman who just said, I'm going to bed and she went to bed and I stood in that corner and I thought, I heard if you don't leave now, you you won't leave with your soul. And I realized the secret. If you want it so much, you shouldn't have it. If you want it so badly, you will pay any price. How people come up through the ranks in television before they really know who they are, They're not themselves. And everybody is like that in every walk of life. You're not yourself. By the time you arrive, you've most likely compromised yourself into somebody that you, that the younger you would look at and go, dude, you're evil. You got to get out. You got, you have to get out, reinvent and say, you have to know what is, what is my goal as a man? Mm -hmm. What is my goal? And anytime you see yourself getting off of that or convincing yourself that, no, you know, this is probably get out, get out and get out now.
2: Yeah. Wow. You know, I want to get deeper into this, but before we do, uh, I want to ask you about your mom. You know, losing a mom at an early age, that's a childhood trauma that uh, I know sends some people into some really dark places. Did me. So talk to me about that in, in more depth, because, you know, the question that always comes up for me has been the people who somehow come out of the other end of that much better off of any sort of trauma and the people who come out of trauma to the point where it becomes their identity.
1: Let me start at the end. Okay. Um, my father, I'm 32, 30, about 32, I'm still Sober now, but no, I'm I'm not drinking, but I'm not sober. And uh, he says to me, um, he uh, I call him up and he's a baker. And I said, Hey, Dad, I'm really having a tough day today. And he's like, What's up? And I said, You know, Dad, I just had a really tough life, and I just start playing the violin. And he's like, Oh my gosh! Now I don't know he's being sarcastic, and he's like, Oh my gosh, you're so right you are so right. You really have, you really had a tough life. I'm like, yeah, see, I know. Right. And he's like, Hey, you know what? I have some bread in the oven. He said, do me a favor, write a list down of all the tragic things that have happened to you. And, uh, he said, then call me tonight. We'll talk about it. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> my dad, you rock. Yes. You got it. Dad. See you later. Hang up the phone and start writing it. I lead with my mom's suicide. I don't even remember what else I put on the list. I don't think I got more than three, but I lead, I lead with my mom's suicide. And I remember when I hit two or three, I went, well, no, wait a minute. If that would have happened, then this wouldn't have happened. And then I went back and I looked at my mother's suicide and I said, wait a minute. It's like 15 minutes I called my dad back. And I said, you don't have any bread in the oven, do you? And he said, smart boy, you figured it out that fast. And I said, Yeah. There is nothing bad that happens to us is there. It's what we do with it that matters, he said. Good boy. Now I do have stuff in the oven. Call me later tonight. And um so I hate I hate the whining.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: You know what I mean? Um because we all have we all have something. Um but my um uh my mom, you know, was a, a very, very creative woman, grew up in the 50s and 60s, and uh, the culture changed, and she was just old enough to not be a part of the hippie movement. And so she was um, a mom who had a husband who worked, and she doesn't work, And you know, she never drove, she never learned how to drive a car until she was, you know, um, gosh, 30, Um and um, she was really frustrated and mm. got entangled in prescription drugs and uh, then alcohol and just went awry. And um, she thought that her only way out would be, you know, the best thing for the family would for, be for her not to be around. And... Um, so uh, um, she was wrong. Yeah. She was wrong. And I, I, um, I got to that same point um, in my 30s after I had screwed everything up and I was left with nothing. And, um, and treating the only thing I wanted was my name. It's the only thing I wanted. I wanted somebody to believe me, that I could change. And uh, I had lied for so long. And uh, I think that's the only thing that bothers me about what the press might say about me. Mm -hmm. They say that I'm not genuine or whatever. Because I have lived a life where I wasn't genuine. And uh, I begged God. That night, um, because I realized I was on the ground, and I realized you were either going to die, and you're going to be exactly like your mother, or you're going to get your ass up off the ground, and you're going to start moving forward. And I wish I could say that when I got up, the skies opened up, but it didn't. It sucked the next day too, and the day after, and the day after that. Um, but I kept moving, and um. And you know, you just you just have to make the choice of. Um, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be that I'm not gonna be that person, and then it's what you do with it. Mm-hmm. Either let it either destroys you or not. Um, but I, I, I in the end I just I wanted my. Um, in the end, all you have is your name. Yeah. That's all you have, your word.
2: Do you think there's something that separates the types of people who get defined and destroyed by something like that and the ones who who don't and, you know, going through something like that?
1: uh, How do you maintain hope? I don't know. Um, In my case, it was, I'm a coward. I was a coward. Here's, here's what it is. I'm a coward. And I was really too stupid to figure out, I just take a whole handful of pills and just go to sleep. And, um, and so I, I mark my life to my cowardice. Um, but I, in that case, am glad that I was a coward. Um, cause it seems reasonable when you're in that state, it seems reasonable. It seems like that's the right thing to do. It seems like that's the only answer and the only solution. And, um, so I don't know how you, get out of it I, I know that benjamin franklin was right when he talked about poverty and he said the best way to help people out of their poverty is to make them uncomfortable in it and when you understand that could sound really mean but when you understand that benjamin franklin started the first hospital mm-hmm. in america he um, not only started the patent office he then rejected the patent for the potbelly stove he could have made a fortune on the potbelly stove but he knew this is something that will save lives and help people. So it's free. Take it. You make it. So it's up to the individual to be good to one another and um, practice what he called the American religion, which is there is a God. He's going to judge us. Best way to serve him is to serve your fellow man. That's the American religion. That's what made us good as a nation. And, um, and I think that um, we coddle people too much. I got a lot of heat when Anna Nicole Smith died and they um, everybody had to, you know, what's Glenn Beck's opinion on Anna Nicole Smith? What, what? And this is the first question every time. What could we have done? Answer. Nothing, nothing. Some people's bottom is I'm checking out. We can love them. We can be there for them. We can say, don't do it, but you don't enable them. But some people Check out. And it's sad.
2: Yeah, yeah, it really is. It, you know, so this actually brings up uh, one more question around this, and we'll, we'll get on to something a little more cheery. <laughs> I know this is kind of dark, but uh, I think it's important to explore uh, because it's reality. I think there's
1: a lot of, I think, and I think the nation is, I think the nation is at the place that we're on the floor, mm-hmm. and we're either going to get up or we're going to die. And right now we're committing national suicide and I want to stand up, but there's a bright, it's not tomorrow, but on the horizon, it's very bright. It's very warm. Mm -hmm. When we get our crap together, it's very warm there. And we just are going to have to decide. And, and unfortunately our country may be a collective that says I'm going to check out. Yeah. You
2: know, I, It's funny because I feel like these kinds of experiences, uh, you know, these sort of rock bottom experiences seem almost to be a part of every single person's journey who I've had here at the unmistakable creative. So the question becomes for me then, do you have to hit rock bottom for the transformation to happen or can you bring the transformation about without hitting rock
1: bottom and if so, how? I am having a fascinating email conversation right now with Simon Senek. (laughs) and uh who also has been a guest on the unmistakable creative and uh i love the way he thinks and we're having this debate um and i think i'm winning it but i don't know yet because he makes compelling case a compelling case but our conversation has been do you need not that to survive in other words um During the Cold War, we needed Russia. We're not that. We don't really even know what we are, but we're not that. Uh, The Romans had that. We're not that. Do you need that? Do you need the Carthage? Um, My argument to him has been, no. But you need a very strong vision of this is who we are. You can make it without the down, but you have to have a very strong vision for the up. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm a Mormon and um, uh, strangely, that is the religion that I picked with my wife, uh, walked in there, and said, "I'll never, you got, you people are freaks. I'll never become one <laughs> of you guys. I really said that. And, uh, and now here I am. But uh, what I, what I love is the actual story of, the people crossing the plains. They were persecuted. They had the the only the only extermination order ever issued for any group of people in the United States of America. Think of that. I didn't, most people don't even know we had an extermination order on a group of people. Wow, and it was Mormons. You could kill them just for being Mormon, and um, so they were driven out, and it was it was horrible, and they had to leave the country. You know, Salt Lake was Mexico. So they crossed the mountains and they settled in, in uh, Salt Lake. Most of them had buried their children, their young children in the plains, carved out in the snow with their hands. And, um, uh, and when they got there, that first, the first thing they did was organize a choir. Think of that. You've just been run out of a country. You've buried your children. The first, thing, the first official thing you do is start a choir to fill the air with music. Um, And then they held a parade and the men carried the, I think it was the declaration of independence and the women carried the constitution. And Brigham Young had them do that because he said, always remember that it is the people that went awry. The principles are true, but people can get lost and we mustn't hate I think that's an example of you can make it. You don't have to have the, um, the dark side, but we, c- we can believe in something without hating something else. We can become something without um, um, the um, vitriol and the desire for vengeance. I don't believe that you can become your best self without struggle. Yeah. Have to have it. It's what makes you. It makes you. I think if you live in a time or you live a life where you are so blessed and you're still a pretty good guy or a pretty great guy, what could you have been had you had strife and struggle? Because it's what carves you what makes you say, I've got to stand up straight. I know who I am. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I mean,
2: I look at the fact that I'm sitting here with you right now, and you know what led me here? Five years of struggle. Of things that haven't gone according to plan, things that haven't gotten the way that wanted them to. Even, you know, things as recently as a couple of months ago. And each one of them has taught me something about how to navigate the next step. Uh, so what I'm curious about is when we look at our struggles, when we look at our past, how do we extract the lessons that will enable us to succeed as we move forward?
1: I don't know. I look at things usually through a God lens, so it's hard for me to relate to, you know, the you know mass that might not look at it that way. But um, I look at it through the lens of everything is for my good. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm meant to be happy. And happiness is a choice. And uh, and everything is for my good. I don't understand the maker's mind. My mind is not his. So I don't know. Um, and I'm supposed to serve. And so when, when you get there, um, you know, uh, for instance, building this network, I don't know, I have a – I have no freaking idea what I'm doing. I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. And um, I just felt – We had to build this and, uh, I've spent the last three years going, what the hell for? What for? I could be wildly wealthy living in the Cayman Islands, doing a little radio broadcast on the beach and talking about strife and struggle and whatever while I'm living in the Caymans. And, uh, I've spent my entire fortune that I've worked my whole life to Mm -hmm. be able to, to have. And, uh, And, uh, I'm building something and I'm like, I don't, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know. I don't have any idea how this is going to work. And I've, I'm, I'm thrilled to be at a place to where and this, I'll tell you, this is where real strength comes from. This is where you scare the crap out of competitors. And you also, unfortunately, scare the crap out of all your employees is I can look at people at the table and go, I don't care. I don't care if I lose it all. I was happier, probably happier when I was poor. So I'm totally cool. And you get such people. You become the guy with a twitchy eye. Everybody at the table is like, oh, crap. We're not going to be able to bully him. No. Go ahead. Shoot me. Go ahead. Put me out of business. I don't care. Real power comes from not caring about, um, Anything that's not real, anything that the world puts value on. Um, uh, And to to be able, luckily, to be able to say that and say, look, we're going to give this a whirl. And you know what? If it all burns down, if it all, we're going to be standing at the end and we can all be crying or we can all go, A, that was really cool. Mm -hmm. That was really cool. And B, what do we do from here? What do we... When Thomas Edison's shop burned down, um, he lost everything and his whole place burned down and, uh, he didn't have insurance on it and he went in after fighting the fire all night and he laid on his kitchen table and he fell asleep and then he got up the next morning and he said, we begin again. And that was it. You can either whine about it or you can say,
3: we begin again. Mm.
2: You know, when you said you're happier when you're poor, I, it, it, my immediate thought was somebody's going to listen to that. I'm like, yeah, that's easy for Glenn to say. I know, I know. That's
1: that's the first thing that came to my mind. Uh, no, no. Here, let me tell you something. Money does not, money does not um, do anything but complicate your life. It, whatever your life is right now, you will have more of it, but you will have the same pressure points and same problems. You'll just have. 300 employees that you're also like, oh, crap. And if I don't get up today, it's not just me to lose a job. It'll be 300 families that won't. You know what I mean? So the pressure just becomes different. And I mean this sincerely. Nothing changes your life except for private air travel. (laughs) That's worth the price of admission. (laughs) All right. On that
2: note, let's dig into something that you brought up earlier when you were talking about the early part of your career. I mean, you're very young, making all this money. And yet you said you're continually dissatisfied. You know, you and I were just sitting in your office talking about this and and how I had this sense that I should be completely satisfied. And suddenly the satisfaction I felt when you and I last met just vanished into thin air. And I was like, there's got to be more. And I really want to hear how we cultivate this mindset of getting to satisfaction when we're going through that sort of vicious cycle. I, I think there's
1: two things. Um, a, on the um, not lose your soul part of it, you have to decide what success is. You know, I told you a story in the office about yeah. a very wealthy friend of mine, You know, been on the Forbes top 50 forever, forever, wealthiest man in the world. And um, he had just fallen off because he's giving all of his money away to charity. The most charitable man I've ever met. And, um, uh, he said to me, so how much is enough? Glenn? I said, I don't know. Well, how much is enough? How will you know when you've arrived, when you have success? And I said, probably about, you know, X, Y, and Z. He said, good. You should write that down because if you don't define it now, it will never be enough. I thought, wow, that is a really good piece of advice. So there is the, let's not lose our soul, Mm -hmm. but then there's the bright side of that. I don't think creatives are ever happy um, (laughs) because we are always, you know, it's strange because I think if I were been a pioneer, I would have gotten to Denver. I might have gone up the first slope, but I would have been like, okay, this is it. And then I got up and I saw all of the peaks beyond, I would have said, Guys, we are parking it in Denver. No further. I would have never gone all over those peaks. I can't even imagine the mindset that said, just one more mountain. You get on the top of that mountain, you're like, oh, crap, one more mountain. Crap, hmm. one more mountain. I can't imagine the mindset. Um, with that being said, that's really kind of what um, a uh, – a, creative person is one that wants to, um, engage in, you know, creative transformation or creative destruction. We are the ones that stand up at the top of the peak and go, yeah, this is going to suck, but wait until we get to the base of the mountains on the other side, it's going to be sweet. And then when we get there, we're like, hmm, not so much, but look over here because we're just always the, we're explorers. Yeah. And, um, You know, the people, especially in high tech right now, really any business, because everything is being changed. Everything is going to change. Everything. Ten years, our life will not resemble what it is now. And um, uh, we're the ones who are going to be the architects. We're the ones. We're the pioneers. Mm -hmm. You know, when I have Eric Schmidt come come to see me, that guy's got to hate my guts. What? When he comes into me and sits in my office and says, we've been studying you. And I'm like, oh, I bet you have, you Google boys. (laughs) And uh, he said, we've been studying you. Everybody's trying to figure out how you're doing what you're doing. And uh, when you have that happen, you realize the whole world's up for grabs. Whole world's up for grabs. It could be any of us. Mm-hmm. You just have to set a course and say, I'm going here. I'm going here. Yeah. Well, and I think
2: you have to be willing to stay that course, right? Um, almost any cost minus your soul.
1: Yeah. It, the the difference is um, the, di- the the ones who – the Lewis and Clarks were the ones who said, I don't care. I'm going. We're going forward. Move Move ahead. Keep mm-hmm. going. Keep going. Nothing – You know, um, John F. Kennedy said, um, we, we don't do these things because they're easy. We do these things because they're hard. Yeah. That's the America I know. That's the entrepreneur. I want to be the creative guy. I, I I am, I'm fascinated by Orson Welles, fascinated by him and Walt Disney. Last night I watched with my kids the uh, the last thing he recorded, Walt Disney did before he died, month before he died. And, um. And I just watched him and I looked into his eyes and I'm like, this guy was, man, he was driven a month before he was dead. And he is, and he's speaking it into existence. That's what he was trying to do. He knew, he knew. And he's, he gets with his writers and he's like, we're writing this up and we're doing this. And I'm documenting because he's speaking it into existence. I stood at Walt Disney world, what, six months ago. And I saw this whole expanse and I've been studying Disney now for the last few years. And um, I see this whole expanse and I thought there's no way he could have seen all of this. There's no way. And then I thought if Walt Disney would have been a wuss, I was like, you know what? The mouse is good enough. (laughs) How different of a nation of a world would we be if Walt Disney just was like I just doing a cartoon thing. Think about how that one man who everyone, my oldest daughter said to me yesterday, she's like, boy, dad, this sounds familiar. Nobody believed in that. Nobody saw his own team. His own brother didn't see it. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. That's the way all visionaries are. They see it. Nobody else does. Everybody says they're crazy. Everybody says settle. Everybody says give up. And they're like, no, I. you know, I don't, care. I'm going this way Mm -hmm. and you need to come with me or not. And, and, and the successful ones are the ones like Steve jobs who say, dude, come with me. It is so warm over there. Come with me. This is going to be incredible. Those are the ones who changed the world. Mm, I love that. So
2: I want to dig deeper into that. Actually, Uh, I mean, you've really gotten to this sense of a message, a mission and a a purpose with what you're doing and, you know, telling people come with you. Clearly a lot of them have, uh, and I am really curious, you know, people are listening to this, are creators and artists of all sorts, people who are trying to do that with their work. How do you get people to come with you?
1: I defer to Simon Sinek. (laughs) Know your why. Yeah. You know, when I first saw him do that, I thought, oh, my gosh, I've been doing I've been doing that without knowing I'm doing that. I know what my why is. At least I thought I did until I sat down with him. Mm-hmm. And I was in the ballpark, but, um, you know, he asked me the two questions. What was your favorite childhood experience? And what was it that if you could do forever, what was it? And mine were, it was amazing. Once he said it, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Um, my grandfather, when I was a kid, um, he taught me something as uh, probably, I was probably about seven, the same kind of year. And, um, it was Christmas and it was like a week before and my, everybody was going off to, um, go shopping and, uh, I was with my grandfather at his house and, um, my grandfather said, you know, boy's going to stay here with me we're gonna, we got some work to do. And so they went out shopping and soon, and I'll never forget, my grandfather stood at the front window and watched that car back out, drive down the street and then go turn the corner. And I just watched him because he never did that. He was always busy doing stuff. And um, he watched them turn the corner and he waited for a second. He turned around and he, was, and he looked at me. with just like glimmer in his eyes and he raised his eyebrow and he said, now the fun begins. And um, he said, can I trust you? And I'm like, uh, yeah. He's like, no, 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 this is between us. Can I trust you? And they said, yes. He said, I'm going to teach you a secret about Christmas that nobody knows. And he took me underneath the Christmas tree where all the presents were. And he showed me how to unwrap all of the presents. So grandma wouldn't know. And so we unwrapped all of the presents. under. we, we opened and we, even, we played with, we tried stuff on. I mean, we played with everything underneath the tree. Wrapped it all back up carefully and put it all back where it belongs. And then we had the fun of watching everybody at Christmas open up all their stuff. And um, uh, I think that, I mean, my why is that. I want to show the magic of, of what is just over the horizon. But you have to open it. Mm-hmm. You have to open it. And I could show it to you. I'm a storyteller. I can show it to you. I can show you what I think it's going to look like, but it's going to be better when you open it. And um and so I think that's the that's the secret. You will never be successful. Because you'll always be sliding in from one thing to another. Mm-hmm. What were you born to do? And it that goes back to what you said at the beginning. I feel bad for people who say, I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't relate to that. I've always known, and and all my children, four children, um, only one of them right now is really focused. The rest of them are like, I don't know, mm-hmm. I don't know, and uh, I find I, I, I don't know what I don't know what I would do with that. Yeah, I don't know what I would do with that. I can relate,
2: you know. I think. I think we had, you know, somebody had asked me, are you nervous about this? And I said, no, like for some reason, the moment I get behind the mic, the rest of the world fades. This is the most natural thing for me to do. And I've it's never quite understood why it works the way it does. Um, wow. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about a lot of the past and a lot of the way the world is looking. You know, one of the really big reasons that I was really interested in interviewing you uh, as I said at the beginning, was this idea that you're the most misunderstood man in the world. And the reason that angle intrigued me so much is because of the response I got from so many people when they found out I was coming to meet you for the first time. And as you, you and were I, the
1: devil, weren't you?
2: Well, as you and I had spoke, I knew nothing about you. I did two Google searches and I thought, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I want to go in and meet this guy as a person. Let me find out who he is because he's done nothing wrong to me. I've never known about your opinions, but what I knew was that they came with a lot of
1: controversy. Uh, Uh, So, so, you know, I've been in the opinion opinion business my whole life. Yeah. Um, uh, In uh, two – Christmas of – I think it was 2008. I was – you know, they do that list every year, that poll, you know, most admired people on the earth. And it's it's always like Nelson Mandela and the Pope – I was between, I was number four between Nelson Mandela and the Pope number four. Uh Then I started working at Fox. (laughs) (laughs) I'll never make that list again. Wow. So, um, uh, before things became so polarized and as I have said recently, I played a role in that not knowing what the hell I was doing now. I didn't realize where we were. I knew we were a nation in trouble, but I didn't think at that time I really thought there was more honesty, more intellectual curiosity on the part of journalists. Honestly, Uh I thought, you know, I spent a million dollars of my own money on research because I knew you can't, you can't say these things without knowing you better have it all buttoned up. So I spent a million dollars of my own money um first time, I think ever in television that somebody's done that. and um, uh, and there's no intellectual curiosity. It's just you're flat out wrong, and I'm not even gonna listen to it. I'm just gonna demonize you and um, and when you're in that game, unfortunately, you know, if you're uh spiritually, maybe eight, Or 12 you fight back Mm -hmm. you fight back and uh it's taken me until the last two years of i don't care i don't care i don't care what you do to me i don't care um when i first sat down that christmas when we decided to go to fox i sat with my kids and uh we made that decision as family Because I was going to go into entertainment television. I wasn't going to do that. But I felt. I wrote the best-selling book that I ever did um, was Common Sense. And I wrote that actually anonymously at first. I wrote it over the holiday at Christmas. And we were on vacation. My wife kept yelling at me, so stop working. So I'd stay up all night and write that. And um, I read it the last day of Christmas to my family. And I said, this is what I believe. And I said, I don't think I could put my name on it. I said, I'll just dump it out on the internet. And um, I said, "Uh, you know, if I go to Fox, it's going to change. It's a much bigger stage. And uh, I say these things, and I don't know what's going to happen. And um, uh, my family all said that they believed me. They believed me that I was... And I was right on my theories of how much trouble the country was in, you know, constitutionally and financially, because this is before Barack Obama comes in. And um, so I made them promise that they would each keep a journal. And uh, I said, you have to write down who your dad really is, because the world will remember me in a completely different way. And so all I care about is that my children and my grandchildren know who I really am. And, um, and so they have, and, uh, uh, in the end, that's all that matters. I know who I am and my children know who I am. Wow. I love that. Hmm.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, what having a stage does to your presence, doesn't it? Like, I, real, I remember I wrote an essay about my meeting with you, mm. about the media mask, and how you were nothing like I expected you would be. You have my friend Kathleen Jasper, who knows about your I work. I love her. Who shares very few of your opinions. Mm-hmm. I, I remember she called me. I was like, so how was it? She's like, "Glenn is a really nice guy. <laughs> I was like, yeah, what were you expecting?
1: I actually had somebody who is one of the best writers in uh, Los Angeles. Um, because we're making film and scripted television and everything else. And um, so this guy comes in from Hollywood. And, I mean, I read the stuff that he, um, you know, believes in. And I'm like, this guy has got to hate my guts. And everybody on my staff just laughed and said, oh, no, no, no. I don't think that describes it quite quite well enough. And I'm like, well, why, why is he even coming? I mean, can he get past that? And, um, uh, one of the guys who knows him said, I think so. I think so. Um, but he wants to meet you. And when he came into my office, his hands were literally shaking. He was, he was shaking like this. He was just, he was so nervous and enraged. And the first thing he said, and I think it comes from you. (laughs) Honestly, I do. I think he, I think he listened to you or I don't know what, but his hands were shaking. And he said, um, you will not beguile me or brainwash me. Oh, I hear about you. And I said, <laughs> "Nice to meet you." And he said, "Don't." I know about you. Oh, everybody says, "Oh, you're such a nice guy." I won't be fooled by you. And I'm like, this guy's nuts. But he talked to me for about 20 minutes, and it was, he tried to. After that, he tried to do a little business. You know, try to be not mm-hmm. so socially awkward. And I said to him, "You got to. You got to tell me what's on." Unload. Go ahead. And he did for about 20 minutes. And then he's like, and it was pretty brutal. And he was like, okay, all right. So let's talk about this project. And I looked at him and I said, you're not done yet. Mm -hmm. That's not the best you have. Come on. And, um, and I didn't defend myself. And he went on. The total was 45 minutes, (laughs) 45 (laughs) minutes unloading on me. And I said, have you said everything you would tell your friends you would say to me? Have you said everything you said if I ever meet that son of a bitch? Have you said it all? And he yeah. said, yeah. I said, good. Now, can we talk about business? And he started in. When I left, he said to my staff, he said, uh, he must have thought I was an ass. And uh, some of my staff said, Oh, I don't think it started out so well. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he left saying he's not what I expected. Yeah. So
2: let me ask you this earlier. And I, I knew I forgot something when you brought up the time at Fox, you know, said you fight back if you're an eight year old spiritually, which I think is ego. And is. I know I remember the first time, you know, when you put my book on the limelight and I got that first two star review and it was, I hope this guy is a better surfer than as a writer. That's how much I remember it. Cause that's the one I always quote when I reference it. I wanted to write back and say, well, you write a book then, right? but I didn't. Now, what I'm curious about is how you shed this spiritual eight-year-old or shed the ego in this process, because I know you've gotten it far worse than I ever have.
1: When you can't walk anywhere in public with your children Mm -hmm. because of what is said or, um, you know, it's a problem. And, um, and uh, that's okay. I mean, we talked about it going in. And um, so um, it's what we do with it. But uh, I'm having a really hard time because I, I believe the entire country needs to shift. We have the potential of the brightest, the brightest era of America um, is just over the horizon for the entire world. It, we will either go into fascism or deep, deep totalitarianism in large sections of the globe in the next 10 years, or we will be more free than our founders could ever have. We have the opportunity because of technology mm-hmm. to truly be free and, and be free globally and Connect in ways we've never connected before. And we're about to blow it. And um it's because of fear and because of those people who have power, who have money, who are just like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, it won't change, it won't change, it won't change. And the harder they hold on to it, the more sand-like it becomes. Um, but they're just they're where they're causing all of us to tear at each other. And if we would all just relax and look at each other, and again, It's easy for Glenn Beck to say, but I'm telling you, it's true. There's nothing to success and money and wealth. There's nothing to it. That's not success. That is the success of the world. And that's a lie. All of that is a lie. Being good, decent, merciful, just, that's success. Our fables, um, all of our, you know, from, from, from nursery rhymes to, um, um, uh, to um, uh, King Arthur. Nobody talks about they wanted freedom. Mm-hmm. I want freedom. I want liberty. I want free to do my own thing. That wasn't it. Up until the American experiment, and we're, we have lost the American experiment. We don't even know what it is. We're now trying to just get to the fable category. Can you be a good king? Will he be a just king? Justice is what's happening to us. No one's paying the price for failed banking, failed businesses, failed marriage. Nobody pays a price. It's no fault. Nothing. Don't worry about it. Nothing. Just make it go away. You can't grow as a people with that attitude. You can't. Mm -hmm. You're robbing me of the most important thing I have. And that is my, my right to fail. If I don't have, if I don't have failure, if I don't have struggle, I cannot be my best self. I will never be challenged. If we all say, take away all the bullies, so my child could have a perfect childhood, a, that doesn't exist. It's ridiculous to think that it does. What kind of bubble is that? And B, you're robbing your children of strength. Mm-hmm. We have the opportunity to say, let's just talk about, let's talk about justice, not social justice. Real justice, justice that we, we look look. These are the rules and we all live by the rules. And justice is blind. It's blind. If you want the rest of it that goes with it, then that's up to the individuals to show mercy. We as individuals are the ones, we're the keepers of mercy. The government should be the keeper of justice. And when you put those two together, you get great at a great society we are failing on mercy how many people said horrible things about me or would say horrible things to to uh, me about you or as i'm going down to try to feed the people on the border how many people did i see say hey i wouldn't take glenn beck's food (laughs) what or they're here illegally they should starve again what one of, one of my head writers said, somebody came up to him the other day and said, you need to tell your boss that he's got to stop trying to be the good Samaritan. And he, he looked at him and he said, I just want you to say that out loud one more time. You tell your boss, stop being the good Samaritan. I'm going to give you one more chance to say it slowly, not so I can hear it, but that you can hear what you're advocating. Stop being the good Samaritan, stop loving one another, stop, especially people that we don't like. What is wrong with us? With technology, we'll either go into massive slavery or we'll free the world.
2: Well, I think that makes a perfect setup for my next question. Actually, Um, you know, you left Fox to start this and one, I'm curious about the early days of of the blaze and the challenges that you faced, how you oh. overcame them, uh, navigating them, and really, it kind of, what do you see as the future of media and the landscape and what's going on? You know, I know the fact that somebody like me plugged a microphone into a laptop five years ago and is sitting here having a conversation like with you, mm-hmm. that's mind blowing to me. In a million years, I would have never predicted this, but I want to hear what you think about it. Given that you've built a career in this industry,
1: um. I was in uh, radio in 1979 and so I've seen a lot of changes. I started when records were still played Um, and um, uh, it's over as we know it. It just hasn't caught up. Yeah. And there's too many people with too much money. I mean, you know, just a few years ago, radio stations were selling for a hundred million dollars, a hundred million dollars. WOR in New York, I think, was Somebody offered them $130 million for it, and I think it finally, like four years later, it sold for 20 or $30 million. I mean, it's changed that fast. Um, so everything is changing. You've got to be on the content side. The delivery, I mean, when I bought this studio, I mean, these are the historic studios at Las Galinas. Prison Break uh, Mm -hmm. was filmed here. JFK, almost every Oliver Stone movie was filmed here. Silkwood was filmed here. Every episode of Barney, every episode of Walker, Texas Ranger, all that was filmed here. When I bought these studios um, for a very good price, I mean, who's in the market for them? But when I bought these studios, um, somebody came up to me and said, congratulations, congratulations and i was really taken aback by that and i said that's not what you say to a man who just bought movie studios you say good luck with that hope that works out for you mm-hmm. because the only way i told my staff when we were negotiating price it took us year year and a half to negotiate the price because we just kept saying nope we won't pay any more than this and uh and they thought we were negotiating we just meant it that's it and um and i said to my staff I um, I have to be able to say, what would we have paid for rent over five years? Total that all up. That's what I'll pay. Because in five years from now, pfft, I don't know if we're going to need these. I need maybe I just need to walk away and just leave the keys in the door and say, where it wants it? go ahead and take it. Because I don't know what it's going to look like. Technology is changing so rapidly that do you need these big studios anymore? I don't know. Um What you will need is creativity. Mm -hmm. You will need artists. You will need um, wordsmiths. You will need performance artists. You you have to have all of that. That doesn't change. How it's packaged, I don't know. I have no idea. Um, uh, I think that the world is going to look more like um, the Google phone than the iPhone, Mm. Um, meaning um, Apple is playing to the 1%, and the 1% percent's about to become more of the 99%. And uh, Google is playing for the cheap 99%. And, um, you know, when you have people sitting in the jungles of Africa and an entrepreneur that comes along and says, I've got a generator. I'll charge your cell phone for a dollar. Dollar a week, or whatever it is. Um, and people are buying these phones and it's the only connection they have to the outside world. They don't have running water. They don't have electricity, but they'll have a Google phone mm-hmm. where Apple is playing for us. Yeah. Um, I think the world is going to look more like let's go for the cheaper one. Mm. Um, at least in this, at least in this country. I think.
2: Yeah. What's your vision
1: for the future of the blaze? Um, a full service. If it's just, if it's just one network, um, it will be full service. Almost like, um, like the old networks used to be, except, you know, if I asked you, you know, what does CBS, what does CBS stand for? I don't know. Profit? Serial? <laughs> I don't know. Um, certainly not quality or, a, you know, Hey, we're the good guys or whatever. Um, and that's where I think they went wrong. They had to be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. That's not the future now. The future is brand. You know, the future is um, um, uh, authentic um, brands. People who really believe something and and um, are trying to live their life. And and uh, so we'll serve um, the the entrepreneur, the libertarian, the um, the people that believe in, you know, basic constitutional freedom, um, uh, we'll serve, we'll serve them and, um, and we'll serve them in scripted television, news television. For me personally, I, I can't wait to get out of, uh, news television. I hate it. Always have never wanted it in the first place. When I went to CNN, turned them down, took it cause I want to learn how shading worked. Uh-huh. And, um, And I wanted to see how television worked. And I was, the first week I was on the job at CNN, I was in there. The the shading room had a combination lock on the door. It said shading room, combination lock. And I'm walking down the hallway and I see that and I'm like, hmm, wonder if they'll let me in. And I knock on the door and the guy opens it up and he's like, yes. And he's like practically an albino, like he never has gone outside. It's very dark. It's it's how you shade the television cameras to tell what color is the Mm -hmm. right color. And so nobody had ever, nobody was ever on the air, ever knocked on the shading room door. And I introduced myself and I said, so tell me about shading. I'll learn about it. And he's like, uh, oh, oh, okay. So I walked in and um, he started showing me all about it. And then he went and took me to the camera and we opened up the camera and he showed me all the stuff. And, and uh, I'll never forget Ken Jouse, who now runs CNN, he, uh, he walks down on the floor, on the stage floor, and uh, he sees me talking to the shader. Like, what the hell are you? And I said, Ken, this is the greatest. He can change the color of my eyes. This is that not great? And um, and he didn't think it was great. I did, um, but I can't wait to get into the more artistic side of things and be done with. Wow, well, politics. That's actually.
2: Uh that I don't think many of us would have expected. I didn't know that about you. And I think it's fascinating. That's really cool
1: that I wanted to get out of that.
2: Yeah. But maybe you've built a career
1: in news, so I would have never guessed that in a million years. It was the last thing I wanted to do. Hmm. I didn't, I mean, we were leaving CNN to go and try to do, um, um, uh, entertainment television. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I left CNN, (laughs) this will surprise people is I, they were trying to give me a raise and get me to sign a new contract. And I said, great. I want to give everybody on the staff a 10% raise. And they're like, you can't do that. And I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm not asking for more. You take what you were going to pay me in addition and you just divvy it up and you pay everybody on the staff 10% more. Well, no, you can't do that. Why? Well, because then they'll be out of whack with everybody else's show. And I said, well, I don't really care about that. These guys are taking care of me and they're making me Look good, and so I want to take care of them. Well, you, you can't do that. Okay, well then you pay me, and then I'm going to pay them on the side. No, 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 you can't do that. That was our sticking point. That was my negotiation. Was I'm trying to get I'm trying to get them to pay people more money, and somehow or another, I'm the evil sob. But I'm leaving because I can't get them to pay people better, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and unfortunately, I got caught in the. I actually actually believe the country's in trouble. And now I think that I think I've I've warned all I can warn. Anybody who would listen listened. Nobody else news coming to the table. Good. So now let me try to do good by um telling stories of love and courage where the good guys win.
2: So let me ask you this and we'll wrap things up here. Uh, You know, it's interesting you say that because, you know, earlier uh, in our conversation and even when we were talking in your office, you talked about the idea of not doing things that could steal your soul. And it seems like now you're moving towards something that really does feed your soul. But do you think when you went to Fox, you actually sold your soul or did something that robbed your soul?
1: No, because I did it with integrity. I, I mean, I did it with the integrity that I had. I mean, the staff worked at my office. I didn't work there. Um, I had an office over there. I never used it, um, never became part of the, the crew over there. Not to say that anybody's bad or anything else, but, um, uh, and I remember when I walked out, there was something on the, there was something on the floor. I don't remember what it was, but it was nothing. It was like $12. It was something on the set that sat on my desk the whole time. And, um, Somebody came and said, because there was stuff that I had brought on the set that was mine. And somebody handed that to me and said, I think this is yours. And I said, and I almost took it because it meant something to me. And I was like, "Uh, actually, I don't think that belongs to me. And it was worthless. They were just going to throw it away. Um, And I said, you better ask the Fox people, but I I don't think that's mine. And I walked out the door. and That was the thing I was most proud of. That door, I heard that door click on my way out. And as I was walking, I smiled and squared my shoulders and I went, not one thing, not one thing did I do that I knew was wrong. I did it with honor and integrity every step of the way to the best of my ability. Did I make mistakes? Tons of them. But I never compromised myself at any time, and that's what I'm most proud of.
2: Well, I think that makes a really sort of fitting end to our conversation. So I want to close with, uh, you know, my final question, which we uh, ask all our guests here at the unmistakable creative. Uh, you know, in some ways, which could we could say has been instigated by the effect you've had on my life. What is it that you think makes somebody or something
1: unmistakable? they know who they are. They know who they are. If you know who you are, um, you're unique. You're unforgettable, unmistakable. You are not, you're cutting a a path. I I think one of the most frustrating things I, I have, a talent that I have is I can really see can see the potential in people. And a very small percentage actually live up to it. Um, I've met almost everybody I meet every day is a millionaire. Maybe 1% are actually making that because there's always something they're dropping the ball on. They're just not willing to go here. I'm not willing to put the time in or I'm not, I'm not willing to, um, Work that hard. I'm not willing to give up my family life that much. Okay, well, that's cool. That's totally cool. But don't come bitching at me when you're not a millionaire. You know what I mean? Um, And the same thing is people I think are afraid. I think we're all exactly alike. Thomas Jefferson was right. Question with boldness even the very existence of God. For if there be a God, he must surely rather honest questioning over blindfolded fear. Too many of us are afraid to open up any door inside of ourself and say, what is really in there? Who am I really? Because we're afraid, I'm nobody. I have nothing. I'm not special. That's a lie. That is a lie. Know who you are and you're unmistakable. Wow.
2: Um, Well, I think that makes uh, an absolutely phenomenal way to uh, wrap up our conversation. And I have to say, I didn't know what to expect, but uh, it's been my pleasure and my honor to have you here as a guest on The Unmistakable Creative and to get to record here with you in your studios in (laughs) Dallas. Thank
1: you. Well, I, I, uh, I have really enjoyed meeting you. And I really think that you are going to do tremendous things. I really do. I really do. You have the right attitude. If you don't lose your soul along the way, um, you have the right attitude. And it's the time. It's just the right time. Thank you. Thank you. And for those of you guys listening, I'll wrap the show with that.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring,
0: and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com/4keys. Use the number 4, K E Y S. That's unmistakablecreative.com/4keys and download your free copy.